Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let me be explicit. Right now in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, April 28th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Trevor Reed, held in Russia for three years on a questionable assault charge, was released in exchange for a Russian asset, a pilot named Konstantin Yaroshenko. Yaroshenko's story is actually sad and pretty troubling. He's been in a U.S. prison in Connecticut for over a decade for the crime of flying a shipment of cocaine from South America to Liberia. Only, he never did it. He never actually made that flight or executed that shipment. And it was only his understanding that some percentage of the shipment would eventually make its way to America. But that was crime enough to hold him in U.S. custody for over 10 years. The only time he's ever been in the United States is for his trial and to serve his detention. So Yaroshenko actually became a cause in Russia, and now he's going back to his motherland. Also a cause, but a curiously muted one, is another American detained by the Russians since February. When asked about Brittany Griner, one of the best women's basketball players on the planet, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Sullivan, told CNN this. There are any number of other Americans here. You've mentioned one quite prominent uh, American, a wonderful American, uh, hugely talented, two-time Olympic gold medalist uh, Brittany Reiner, who was arrested approximately two months ago here. But we have a number of other Americans, Allison, uh, who are not as uh, well-known as, as Brittany, and each and every one of them is of a great concern to me. Kind of pivoting off the subject of Brittany Griner. Why isn't this prominent American getting more attention? Is it just that the WNBA has a lot less cachet than I thought? No, the strategy is not to make Brittany Griner a cause, cause even though doing that would be the instincts of her loved ones and her supporters, it would be counterproductive, the thinking goes. It would raise her value as a bargaining chip and therefore make Putin less likely to release her. I do have to say, though, this general playbook on hostage negotiation isn't always the correct one. I could see a scenario where by raising the value of Griner, this incentivizes Putin to trade for her, to make a trade for a large haul, thus increasing his status as a hero among his countrymen. I find it curiously coincidental that the Reed-Yaroshenko prisoner exchange didn't occur during the almost three years of Reed's detention predating the Ukraine war, but happened during the war. The return of captured Russians is now of high importance to Putin. Maybe that's why he targeted Greiner shortly before his invasion. 
There's so much activism around women in sports, LGBTQ rights, African-Americans arrested on suspicious drug charges, professional basketball players and celebrities. It's really odd to see no activism around this famous African-American LGBT professional women's basketball player arrested on a suspicious drug charge. There must be quite a push from the State Department to league officials to keep quiet on this obviously sensitive but unjust detention. So I'll say it. I'll say it quietly but clear. Free Britney, free Britney Griner. On the show today, I spiel about the aid package to Ukraine and think about sums of money as sums, not stories. But first, Ken White is back for the second half of his conversation on what actual legal jeopardy Trump might be in. I flat out press Ken on his predictions. He does not plead the fifth. Ken White up next. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Ken White is an attorney at Brown, White, and Osborne LLP in Los Angeles, a former federal prosecutor. His practice now includes criminal defense and First Amendment litigation. When we spoke to Ken yesterday, he had pointed out that so many of the cases against Trump depends on mens rea, establishing Trump's state of mind at the time of the alleged crime. A difficult task in any circumstance, one made more so with a defendant who can plausibly said to believe some pretty outlandish theories. Yet a couple of weeks ago, a U.S. District Court judge asserted, quote, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on Jan 6, 2021. So I asked Ken to square the bluntness of that pronouncement with what we've always heard about the extremely high bar of proving Trump's mindset. Well, because you're talking about very different contexts and very different standards. So if you're prosecuting Trump uh, by a DA in a state court in Georgia, uh, then you're going to have to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt, and he is going to be able to put on a defense. In the case here in California involving uh, John Eastman, uh, pride of the Federalist Society and the Claremont Institute, and uh, infamous for any number of memos and, and articles, um, you're arguing over whether or not the, the committee asking for the documents has made a sufficient showing that an exception to the attorney-client privilege applies, and that's the crime-fraud exception. And there, you don't have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Trump is not coming in to offer a defense. It's only Eastman who is making the arguments. And uh, the standard is much lower. The judge just has to find it more likely than not. Now, I think you could convict Trump on a more likely than not uh, standard. I think where it gets difficult is when you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So um, 
I think it's more likely than not that he actually was being corrupt and knew it. But I do have a niggling doubt in my mind about whether he's just such a narcissistic freak that he sincerely believed this stuff to the extent he actually has any definable mental states. Is there any real importance to that judges more likely than not finding beyond the four corners, uh, legal phrase, I know you guys like that, four corners of the Eastman, um, not prosecution, but the Eastman decision that he was looking at? Can we take that? Does it mean anything other than we could wave it around and say, well, one judge thinks that he did it? It's, it's mostly clickbait. So outside the significance to that case and to whether the committee gets those documents, um, it does not have any real – it doesn't compel the same result anywhere else. It might be persuasive. Other judges might cite the analysis. It might make other decision makers feel more free to reach a decision. But it does not legally compel a result anywhere else. So from everything that you've seen or read coming out of the January 6th commission or – there have been some other document dumps kind of related to that, but not necessarily from the commission. Um, they've added some meat to the bone about what Trump knew on January 6th as relating to the insurrection. But of course, we all know that he gave an incendiary speech. He said what he said about, you know, follow me to the Capitol. We also know that there are standards. I, I think those of us who know the law enough know that the standards for incitement are pretty high and just be by saying something arousing, that doesn't necessarily mean you're guilty of uh, the violence that a mob does. But of all the stuff coming out of the January 6th commission, do you think any of it substantially uh, puts more meat on the bone, gets us further along to the idea that this is a plausibly prosecutable offense? I, I would say yes, but with an asterisk. So I haven't seen anything that I think makes Trump's speeches to the crowd prosecutable. Uh, those are still limited by, you know, the, the First Amendment standard for incitement, the Brandenburg standard, where you have to show it's intended, likely to cause imminent lawless action. It's a terribly difficult burden uh, to carry. I don't think they think they can carry it. But... As to, you know, federal prosecutors have an amazingly flexible bag of tricks. They've got all of these statutes that can be used in all of these creative ways, and it's rare for them not to be able to find a way to charge something if they want to charge it. So here, if you're talking about a conspiracy to obstruct justice, uh, a conspiracy to interfere with Congress to obstruct a proceeding, I think that's plausible. Uh, and I think it's something certainly I would expect under normal circumstances, a thorough federal investigation of, and possibly even a prosecution. I think likely the barriers are primarily about political will and not about whether they can possibly put on a case. So if, if you, if this were being orchestrated by a bunch of private figures, I think that they would take the shot, um, absolutely. But because uh, it's public figures, because it's political figures, and because, again, the prosecution is going to be all-consuming, um, then it's a matter of political will, whether they go forward with it or not. What's some of the information that ties him to this conspiracy that could be prosecutable that you've seen? Well, it's not just him, but other people in the administration and Congress and that type of thing. But we've seen a lot of things about the 
content of the communications back and forth uh, that have been revealed uh, both and the fact of the communications, the timing of the communication. Sometimes you can learn a lot just by seeing when someone called and who they called and, and not just the content of that communication. All of that is stuff that prosecutors would normally use to prove up a conspiracy to do something. Remember for a conspiracy, you just have to prove that a group of people agreed uh, to try to violate a particular federal law. And so to like to try to interfere with a congressional proceeding. And uh, it's it can be very easy to prove. Uh, and I, I think normally, again, with this type of stuff, if it wasn't Trump, if it wasn't members of Congress and political figures, they would take the shot. Uh, here, I'm not so sure because I don't know that they have the political will. And I, I, it's going to be, there's so many intangibles and so many difficulties in the prosecution. So the the proceeding was the vote to certify the election and all the chatter among people in Trump's circle and sometimes up to and including Trump could be prosecuted based on what you've seen um, that they did try to what they did do. They did try to just it, it was in fact disrupted and they had the intent to disrupt it. Well, I, I, I think what I said is I think it's plausible. Uh, so I don't know. I, I haven't seen all the evidence, obviously. None of us have. But it certainly seems like the picture that would normally lead to an intense investigation, possibly indictment. Uh, I think whether they could win that or not is a, sto- is an, a question I'm not ready to answer until I see evidence. Mm-hmm. And the evidence, or at least uh, what you've seen and are basing this on, there's been a lot of publicity out of the Congressional Commission, but that doesn't mean that Merritt Garland and the Justice Department didn't have it. In fact, well, you tell me, there seems to be every sign that what the important things, the material things that we know about from the commission is already known by the Justice Department. Am I getting that right? It likely already is. Uh, and it seems as if we're getting indications the Justice Department is doing some parallel things. There was some reporting in the last couple of days, for instance, that uh, the Justice Department was looking into things and that Alex Jones uh, was looking to cooperate and maybe get immunity. So, you know, there are a lot of different components to what you look for in putting together an investigation, whether you're that commission, that committee, or whether you're the Justice Department. You're looking for uh, physical evidence like records of calls and recordings of calls, and you're looking for testimony, people who will lay it out and say what happens. And so you have to mix all those together. But the, the fact that people like Alex Jones are interested in cooperating, according to some reporting, is significant in terms of how far along the Justice Department is. Is there an urgency to this? Well, sure. Uh, there, there are a few types of urgency. One is that the values of deterrence and of demonstrating that we won't tolerate gross violations of the rule of law tend to fade as, as time goes on. Uh, so even though federal investigations or prosecutions are historically very slow and take years, after a certain point, you lose the kick from doing it. You lose the benefit to the rule of law. Second of all, I mean, you've got uh, a Congress that may very well flip and a presidency that could flip in a couple of years. And you've got to figure that if, uh, you know, if, if a Republican gets into office, uh, there's a high chance that some, that's someone who's going to derail any prosecutions that are still pending then. Um, 
if not sabotage them by pardon or, or something else. And that Congress, uh, if it switches control, will be a significant barrier. Yeah, well, tell, tell me about that, because I see a lot of Democrats clamoring for Merrick Garland to bring the prosecution, bring it already, and you wouldn't want to rush something before it's baked. But I really don't understand, except if it's uh, on a narrow you know, midterm election consideration, what's the benefit of bringing it in the next six months or the next 18 months, as long as you bring it you know, sometime before 2024? I think that's true. I, I, I think that a... Uh... Congress that swings to the Republicans can do things to mess up a federal criminal prosecution by probing into it and you know, that sort of thing, uh, but not nearly as much as an administration can do. And again, the problem is we are, as Americans, not a particularly patient people, and we're particularly not about criminal justice matters. So um, the the competitive advantage of federal prosecutors is that they can sit back in their web like spiders and spin it and things, cooperators will come to them and their agents will go out and bring them information and they can build these elaborate cases over years uh, with a great amount of care. Uh, and you squander that competitive advantage when you rush into things just because you want to and you want it now, you know, the way like, no, I don't want to wait another year for season three of Ted Lasso. I want it now. It's the same type of American <laughs> spirit, right? And no, just want, as important. Exactly. <laughs> Both I, issues. I, I, yeah. want, I want my prosecution now. Yeah. And so uh, that's always a problem. If you look at the prosecution of the people who uh, you know, invaded Congress on January 6th, I think it kind of shows you the way it can be done right. So it's a reactive event. They arrested a bunch of people immediately. But since then, they've been steadily identifying and charging some of the more difficult cases as time goes on. And that shows you how the federal government does it right when it does it. It builds a case over time using its vast resources. So um, any prosecution over a conspiracy about January 6th is going to be historically complicated. And it's going to take a lot of time to do it the right way. And by the right way, I mean the way the feds do it, which is to generally build um, a almost impossible to defend case. That's what they like to do. They they like to just bury you in evidence. Right, right. And Praise be to their uh, methodological patience. But of course, as you know, prosecuting some uh, schnook electrician from Ohio is a lot different from prosecuting some schnook real estate de developer from New York. But my point is <laughs> a lot different from prosecuting Donald Trump. Uh, I also liked the uh, the scurvy spider Lionel, Lionel Barrymore in This American Life uh, image of you talking about federal prosecutors. So credit for that. So your prediction, and you could express it with a confidence interval, will Merrick Garland bring a prosecution of Donald Trump? What will the charges be? If you want to go for the triple crown, when? Um, my prediction is he will not. Um, I, I give that with a fairly confident level of confidence. Let's put it at 70%. Uh, and there may be some peripheral people charged, uh, and those will be for, you know, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding or something like that. I don't think there will be prosecutions based on the theory that a particular speech 
was incitement meeting the Brandenburg standard. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the one I have the least confidence predicting is probably Georgia because uh, DAs are in general harder to predict than feds. Ken White is a First Amendment litigator, criminal defense attorney, Brown, White, and Osborne's his firm, former federal prosecutor. He's been doing First Amendment law, defamation cases since 2001. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for coming on The Gist, Ken. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. President Joe Biden has asked for $33 billion to keep funding the war efforts in Ukraine. Seems like a lot, but also seems like not that big an amount in that his request was immediately supported by prominent members of both parties with no one that I could see saying we simply can't afford it. But remember a few months ago when this next amount was reported in similarly serious tones? What we're hearing from the White House is that the president also informed President Zelensky that the U.S. intends to provide the Ukrainian government with a half billion dollars, $500 million of direct budgetary aid. All right, but $33 billion is 66 times that amount cited, but no one's saying $33 billion in 66 times as serious a voice as the $500 million. So the U.S., which also gave $13.6 billion a couple months ago, the spending is going off, it seems, without a hitch. But let's compare it to the nice things that we can't have domestically. The expanded child tax credit was a godsend for poor families. After the program ended, the number of children in poverty rose from just under 9 million to over 12.5 million. It was very, very helpful, but it did cost a lot of money. Of course it cost a lot of money. The whole program just was a lot of money. That's why there are so few inefficiencies. Just giving money to people really helps them get out of poverty and buy things like food. So it will cost $125 billion to keep up the program at previous levels. That's according to the Tax Policy Center. And the price tag to revert to the old child tax credit of peak pandemic would be $225 billion. That is a lot of money. Of course it is. Just the regular spending, not the peak pandemic spending, is five times the price tag of arming the Ukrainians. That's if the current proposal goes through at what Biden has said it will cost. So three observations, one general and two observations on the merits of each program. First, I think the child tax credit is a very worthy national policy. It seems to have very little wasted spending. It didn't have the unexpected consequence of, say, encouraging parents to quit the workforce, though with current unemployment rates, that might be not that terrible. But there are legitimate concerns about injecting that much money into the economy at a time of high inflation and also taking on that much debt. The other policy, arming the Ukrainians, I actually can't think of a better way to spend a dollar than in a Ukrainian weapon system right now, repelling an active invasion by Russians, an invasion which will oppress, kill, has already slaughtered thousands, maybe millions of Ukrainians. The marginal utility of each dollar spent does not weaken 
What does weaken is the Ukrainian forces, which has an excellent add-on effect for human interests, human rights, and American interests. Protecting Europe protects ourselves, and each dollar spent on the Ukrainian step could be said to be many, many, many dollars saved down the road. Plus, I like seeing Russian tanks explode and their ships sink. $33, that's $100 per American, which ain't nothing, but this is literal bang for the buck that's worth it. Okay, so here's the general observation. It is so hard to get analysis that A, compares real costs, and B, acts as if the costs are real. There is a trend in journalism to tell stories through characters, which often mean anecdotes, and I understand it. We as humans connect through other humans. But I also think that over time, since I've at least been doing this job, we've systematically weakened our ability to actually process data as data. The most common ways I hear about these stories are framed as sympathetic character sketches about, say, families whose lives benefited from this cash infusion. That money made a difference on what we could get for our family. What did you spend that money on? Back to school clothes, haircuts, um, shoes. Similarly, the story of the funding of Ukraine has not been one of calculation, but of a cause. The children of war have captured the world's attention for their bravery and their resilience. So that argues for the benefits of this spending. Arguing against it are just general worries about debt or inflation, sometimes promoting and amplifying the most outlandish claims by people who are always against spending on social programs and sometimes always against spending on war. So usually it's something like, Good cause versus spending bad because spending's always bad. You will never get from either of those sides any way to make the calculation. How can we ever get at the real question, which is, is the cause worth the cost? Much more common is the idea, the cause is not worth it or the cost is de minimis. It's true that on the right, there's often the hypocritical concern over the deficit when it comes to helping the poor, but when it comes to tax cuts, the right are always for that, somehow ignoring that when it comes to the deficit, there are two inputs. One is the money you receive, and one is the outlays you commit to. But there is, on the left, a more and more popular notion that there's really no such thing as costs. I don't mean in the general it will cost us more not to do it, or the ubiquitous, it will pay for itself sort of way. But in the dismissal or denigration of any concern about spending on social programs as a legitimate concern, MMT, even if not explicitly endorsed by name or initials, has generally convinced enough people in the party or dovetailed with a leftish desire for the only constraints to be of will and that there is no debate over cost that is ever legitimate if the thing we want to do is a good thing. Character-driven, non-empirical stories further the notion that politics is the question of moral generosity versus evil parsimony. We're in a terrible position where many people on the left think that any worry over cost for a worthy program is pretty much concern trolling. 
there is a suspicion, even an animosity, toward the fundamental task of elected officials, which is to decide what to spend on because you can't spend on everything. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. And I will now give you a glimpse into what Corey, Joel, and I have been laughing about all afternoon. Could you? It's horrible. Could you play that clip, Corey, Joel, the one about the kids? The children of war have captured the world's attention for their bravery and their resilience. Always with the brave children. In the history of war, has there never been a population of scared children? I mean, the bell curve would dictate that some of the wars were just a bunch of scaredy cat children. But you never hear that. And then the Blitz came and the denizens of London assembled in their underground shelters where many of the children wailed into the night and wet themselves, stinking up the place. Now you must put on a brave face for mummy. No, I can't, mummy. I'm a scaredy cat. You raised me to be a scaredy cat. And now I'm going to wet myself. Michelle Pesca is the person at Peachfish Productions who does not approve of any of this. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oompru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>